there was this practice, a bid'ah. There was a bid'ah of called Salatul Raghaib during the 15th of Sha'ban. So the Shaykh was really outspoken against it, that this is wrong. Even though there were other famous scholars at the time who decided not to say anything, not to, not to kind of rock the boat, you could say, and not to uh, cause problem, further problems. Maybe it was just the situation of the time. But Sheikh Izzuddin, he was fearless. He just made it very clear this is completely wrong, and he strongly opposed it. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin. Amma ba'd, qala Allahu tabaraka wa ta'ala fil Qur'an al-Majid wal Furqan al-Hamid, bal huwa ayatun bayyinatun fi sudur al-lazina utul ilm. وقال تعالى هل يستوي الذين يعلمون والذين لا يعلمون إنما يتذكر أولو الألباب ما شاء الله it's wonderful to be with our beautiful brothers here under this arch and ما شاء الله الله سبحانه وتعالى bless this masjid and bless everybody here and الله سبحانه وتعالى bless our brothers and relieve our brothers wherever they are today we're going to speak about a very a very very inspiring individual I'm inspired by him because whenever I've read his story, uh, I first read it in Sheikh Abul Hassan Ali Nadwi's book called The Saviors of Islamic Spirit or the Tariq Da'wat Al-Azimat. Original name of it is Tariq Da'wat Al-Azimat where he discusses some of the main people of the first five, six centuries. And he is one of them. <clears throat> so we're going to start from the time when Salahuddin al-Ayyubi rahimahullah has taken Masjid al-Aqsa and many of the lands that had originally been taken by the Crusaders and uh, he managed to take all of those back and brought back uh, a lot of peace and uh, stability to the Muslim communities there and he then reintroduced the true teachings of Islam everywhere because a lot of the lands that he took he took over from the Fatimids the Fatimids had been a, a Shia dynasty. And they had obviously uh, spread Fatimid fiqh and, uh, uh, against the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. So he managed to bring it all back and managed to have all of this spread uh, among his realm, along with a lot of uh, educational institutes. So, mashallah, that he managed to restart and re rejuvenate a lot of education for Muslim scholars and, and for people. He started to patronize a lot of Muslim scholars and madrasas and institutes and such other organizations. Now, among the people who rose during this time, among the scholars who became very well known, who studied under this tradition and then became very well known and mashallah managed to really help um, manage to uh, really uh, do something is Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam. So he's a product after all of the reforms that Salahuddin rahimahullah had made in, in uh, the Muslim lands. Now this Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam, some of the main features as we're going to be discussing inshallah, some of the main features of his life is obviously his profound learning, his deep insight into the different aspects of Islam, his piety and his courage. What amazes me is that along with all of that, the courage that he had was amazing and he never compromised himself. That is one of the very, very distinct features 
and may we all learn from this. Firstly, he was born in 578 AH, 578 AH, which is, you can say, late 11th century, uh, uh, 1200s, around that time. That's when he is born, just after Ghazali has gone. Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, has left. So this is when he is. He was the student of seven of a very famous, several very famous scholars at that time of Damascus. So he's born in Damascus in Syria. And uh, he is a student of Fakhruddin ibn Asakir, rahimahullah. Saifuddin al-Amidi, rahimahullah. I mean, um, maybe a lot of you won't know who that is, but the scholars, they've definitely heard these names of Amidi and Ibn Asakir. These Ibn Asakir families, an amazing family. Some of them were linguists. Some of them uh, were historians. And uh, these are the kind of people he studied under, along with other people as well. He actually started studies quite late. He didn't start as usually, you know, people start in young age. He actually started later, later on in his life. And, but soon acquired amazing proficiency. He was just a, a very erudite, very, very, <clears throat> mashallah, very, very intelligent. Such that, uh, mashallah, the amount of uh, uh, knowledge that he gained in a very short amount of time, you could say, his contemporaries started to pay tribute to him. His contemporaries started to respect him. Now, with ulama, anybody can call himself a scholar. But really, the way to find out if a scholar is who he is and at a good height is if others also respect them and show that. Just like with doctors as well, everybody claims to be a doctor, but if lots of other doctors consider somebody to be a specialist and really good at what he does, then that really means something. Otherwise, you know, we could deceive a lot of people except the professionals in that area. So, for example, uh, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid. I know I'm putting out a lot, of, a lot of names to you, but it's wonderful to speak of these pious people of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who are responsible for our deen reaching us today. Right, with all of their work. So Ibn Daqiq al-Eid is a great scholar. And uh, he, call, he called him Sultanul Ulama. The Sultan of the scholars. He called Izzuddin Ibn Abdi Salam, he called him Sultanul Ulama. Right, the Sultan of the scholars, meaning the king of the scholars. And that's why he's well known as Sultanul Ulama. Now, he did this when he migrated to Egypt. So he was in Damascus, but then he went to Egypt after that in 639. So you can see he's much older now, right, in 639, because he was born in 578. So this is a good 50, you know, he's 60, 70 years old by this time. This is where, when another great scholar called Hafiz Abdul Azim al-Munthiri, Abdul Azim al-Munthiri, who is the author of At-Targheeb al-Targheeb, another collection of hadith, he, when he, oh, he was in Egypt, and when Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam moved into Egypt, imagine it, like somebody moves into, into London or East London, and the Mufti Saab there says, I can't give fatwas anymore. Abdul Azim al-Munthiri Shaykh, he said, I can't give fatwas anymore. He suspended giving fatwas. When asked why, he said, it doesn't behove any jurist. It is not appropriate for any jurist to give legal opinions when Izzuddin is present there, you go and ask him for fatwa. Nobody else can give fatwa. Community was a lot more closer together and was much more organized in, the, in those days, unlike today. Right? So that's another thing. Uh, Shihab, Jam, uh, Sheikh Jamaluddin Ibn al-Haji was of the opinion that in fiqh, in masail, in rulings, Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam was actually greater than Ghazali as well. In fiqh at least, in Ghazali as well. Imam Zahabi, who's a great historian and a muhaddith, 
well-known, well-known historian and muhaddith. Sorry, we're putting out a lot of names for you, right? Um, but just pretend they're footballers' names, right? Uh, I'm just joking. So these are, mashallah, these are some of the greatest people that, you know, if you start studying the deen in, in detail, you'll, you'll come across these names. Imam Dhahabi writes in his famous book called Al-Ibar, Al-Ibar, that in his knowledge, meaning in the knowledge of, uh, in uh, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, in his knowledge, fiqh, devotion to religion, and awe of Allah, he had attained the degree of absolute completeness, completion, that makes one capable of ijtihad, interpreting the revealed law of Allah, and deducing new laws from it. So he had a lot of respect for him as well. He became the chair, uh, 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 the professor, for a long period, in the Madrasa Zawiya Ghazaliya in Damascus. He was the, the chair, the, the main teacher of the Madrasa of the Zawiya Ghazaliya in Damascus. Along with being the khatib, meaning the, the one who gives the khutbah, and the imam of the Jami' Umawi. The Jami' Al-Umawi have had, uh, alhamdulillah, the absolute honor of having studied there, uh, which is the, the big mosque in Damascus. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned it even though it did not exist in his time. He mentioned that that is the masjid where Isa will descend on its eastern minaret. So Imam Ghazali had gone and stayed there for a while and observed a retreat. And there was a madrasa there. And I studied uh, in that very same mosque and maybe around that same area as well with the great sheikh called Sheikh Abdul Razak Al-Halabi Rahimahullah. And this was in 1998 before, uh, before the whole problem uh, has started in um, before at least the recent problems uh, have, have caused such a chaos down there. Another great historian, a Shafi'i historian, whose name is Shihabuddin Abu Shama. Sheikh Shihabuddin Abu Shama is actually written a wonderful book on basically the history of the Ayyubids, of Salahuddin Ayyubids, uh, his descendants and, and, their, and their rule and so on. He's written about the Akhbarul uh, Dawlatain. Basically, he's a historian. He says that the Shaykh completely opposed. There, there was this practice, a bid'ah. There was a bid'ah of called Salatul Raghaib during the 15th of Sha'ban. So the Shaykh was really outspoken against it, that this is wrong. Even though there were other famous scholars at the time who decided not to say anything, not to, not to kind of rock the boat, you could say, and not to uh, cause problem, further problems. Maybe it was just the situation of the time. But Sheikh Izzuddin, he was fearless. He just made it very clear this is completely wrong. And he strongly opposed it. Now, at that time, the rulers, so you have to remember that the various different lands, the Muslim lands after Salahuddin al-Ayubi had been distributed among his sons, among his family. So Halab, the north of Syria was under somebody, Damascus was under somebody else, then you had somebody in Egypt, and so on. So you had people around the different areas. So here it was Al-Malikul Kamil. That's his title, Al-Malikul Kamil. He was... Uh, the one in charge, he insisted that the Shaykh, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, take the position of the judge. He didn't want to take the position of judge. Being a judge is a very difficult thing in, in one of those rules because then you have to give judgments according to what the ruling, uh, what the ruler wants sometimes. And you, you can't do that. You have to literally then come, uh, you have to really then come against the ruler in some cases, especially if you're very true to your words. I mean, you've seen how uh, we've got cases where uh, certain uh, politicians, certain groups, I mean, they, they are forced to vote a certain way. They can't vote according to their real conscience or even what their uh, people of their, um, their area say. For example, it's just complicated once you get an official position like that. So he refused. 
And then after that, he agreed uh, with some conditions. So he put a few conditions. And so he was appointed by Al-Malik Al-Kamil as also an envoy to the Abbasid Caliphate. So you have to understand this. The Abbasid Caliphate started after the Umayyad Caliphate had, had been um, uh, t- taken down in 132 Hijri. 132 Hijri is when the Abbasids began. And they lasted until about 600s. However, initially they were the ones governing everything, but slowly, slowly, others would govern, like the Seljuks would govern, the Ayyubids would govern, and the Mamluks would govern, and they were just considered the, the people in charge in Baghdad, and, uh, and these others who would actually do the proper governance, they would just have a relationship with them, understanding that they are the Khalifs, but we actually rule the land. So the Ayyubids were ruling the lands, at least these lands, right? While you had the Seljuks on another side, and then, uh, and then soon you're going to also have, uh, and uh, it started, Ertugrul has already come on the scene around this time, right? And then the Ottomans are starting after the Seljuks are dying, right? But on the other hand, you've got the Ayyubids who are eventually taken off, right? But anyway, this is the time when the Ayyubids are there. And uh, so he was uh, appointed the envoy and the ambassador from the court of Al-Malik Al-Kamil uh, to, to the Abbasid Khalif in, in, uh, in, in Baghdad. That's where the center of the caliphate still was. So they were still down there. He was held in high esteem by everybody, very religious person, very righteous, and he was held in high esteem uh, by everybody. And so a lot of these governors and ministers and so on used to come and visit him, but he would never visit the king himself. He would never visit the sultan himself, right? But he would advise them. He would advise them to be beneficial to Islam. That was his constant uh, advice that, look, you need to do what's right for Islam. That was his usual uh, his usual advice. Now, another one of the Ayyubid leaders was Al-Malik Al-Ashraf, right? Al-Malik Al-Ashraf. So he, uh, Isuddin had been under Al-Malik Al-Kamil, but Al-Malik Al-Ashraf from another area, right? He was uh, he in Halab, so he was in northern Syria. He called, he called him once, even though he had some misunderstanding about Isuddin ibn Abdul Salam. He had some misunderstanding about him because he'd heard things and people say all sorts of things. So... Despite that, he called the Shaykh, right? And uh, when, he, when he called him, he, Alhamdulillah, after the meeting, a lot of the misunderstanding was, uh, was clarified. The Sultan then requested for him to forgive him, requested the Shaykh Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam to forgive him and asked him for some advice. So now look at the way he approaches. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam said that so far as your request for pardon, meaning to forgive, I forgive everybody with whom I have any kind of displeasure or any problem as soon as the sun goes down. Or before the sun goes down every day, I've cleared my heart, I've forgiven everybody. And I don't have any animosity towards anybody. I desire my recompense only from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My reward only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you're telling me to make dua for you, then I pray for your well-being because... And he was a bit sick, I think. He said, I pray for your well-being because if you get better, then it is good for the welfare of the Muslims and Islam. And as far as advice is concerned, the advice I'm going to give you is that 
I know that you, the Sultan, is very well known and reputed for his valor and bravery and his brilliant victories that he has won. But there's one thing that you're missing, which is that the Tatars, the Mongols, are making inroads into, the Muslim, into these lands. They'd already caused a big hassle in other lands. They're, going, they're, making, uh, they're making a lot of uh, inroads and, uh, in, into all of these lands. And as you know, with uh, the, uh, you know, the, the early the Seljuk, the later Seljuks, that's eventually they, they, they were basically, you can say, made defunct by, by the Mongols. And that's why the Ottomans uh, started. So this was around that time. They're making inroads into the many Islamic territories and they have become emboldened. Now, why, why were they able to do this? Right? Because you had Seljuks on one side, you had Ayyubs on, Ayyubids on the other side, and you had Mamluks and others. So why are the uh, Mongols able to do this? So he was telling him, he says, they've become emboldened by the fact that the Sultan has pitted arms against Al-Malikul Kamil. They were against one another. The two Muslim factions were against one another. And you have no time to face the enemies of Allah. Al-Malikul Kamil is your elder brother. He's the elder brother of the Sultan and you have a problem with him. I request you to give up that idea. Stop fighting against him and turn your, en- uh, turn your, arm- uh, turn your armies to face the enemies of Islam. And ju- this is the days of illness for you. Because the Sultan was ill at that time. He said, this is the days of illness for you. So this is something that you really should do. Because if, it turns, if you win, it is good for you. Otherwise... Otherwise, you'll still get your reward for it. You're going to die anyway. The Sultan thanked Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam and turned his forces uh, towards the Mongols. Thereafter, he said, give me some more advice. So he, he came back for some more advice. And Izzuddin said that the Sultan is bedridden. Right? So you're in bed because you're sick. However, your chiefs are having rounds and bouts of pleasure. They're enjoying themselves in wine and other wickedness. So they're drinking and other things. While Muslims are being burdened with, while the regular Muslims are being burdened with taxes, heavy taxes. And your, your ministers and everybody, they're just enjoying themselves. Hence, the most valuable thing that you can do is to stop this. And be just, make justice available for everybody. Al-Malik al-Ashraf not only acted on this, but he thanked him saying that may Allah reward you. And then he said, allow me to be your companion. Look, look how much respect he had for him he said allow me to be your companion in paradise allow me to be your companion in paradise and then he presented to him a thousand gold coins but Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam refused them and he said I did this for Allah and I do not want any worldly temptation to pollute this in addition to this I'm doing it purely for the sake of Allah so not only was he so courageous in giving advice, but he was really, really, he was really, really open to giving uh, criticism whenever it was due. Al-Malikul Ashraf finally died, and he was succeeded by Salih Ismail. Salih Ismail, he, in order to fight against another Muslim faction, he sought help from a Christian groups against Egypt. So. Egypt was also ruled by, you know, um, Muslims, a Muslim ruler. But he wanted to take over that area. So he uh, tried to, he made an alliance with some of the Christian rulers of the time. 
And in doing so, he gave them a few lands and some forts. One of the forts of Saida, uh, uh, I think that's what it's called, uh, Thaqif, and some other forts, he gave them so that they could help him. This is our history, unfortunately. This has been history, right? It's just really sad. The Christians also then started to buy, uh, they were sold arms, they were sold weapons by some of the Muslims of Damascus. Izzuddin got really, really angry and he condemned these sales, saying that most likely eventually they're going to be used against the Muslims. So then what he did was he gave up making dua. You know, he, he's the khatib, he's the imam, he gave up making dua for the, for, for the sultan. Not going to make dua for him anymore. On Fridays, on Jumu'ah. Now that in Muslim countries even today, and traditionally throughout, the imam making dua for you is like one of the greatest honors of you being the, the leader. For you to be on the coins, right? And for you to be, you know, the, have a, a, having a khutbah in your name. So Izzuddin stopped, give, uh, stopped uh, making dua for him. And in fact, he in, started to invoke the wrath of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the enemies of Islam. He kept it as the enemies of Islam. So the king got a bit angry. The sultan got angry and he, he had him imprisoned. He had him imprisoned. And then after that, there was a meeting in Jerusalem, from Damascus in Jerusalem. So he had him imprisoned there while he was there as well. So this Salih Ismail with Al-Malik Al-Mansur of Homs. So Homs is actually between Damascus and Halab. It's in between. So they're together against the Halab, uh, against Egypt, sorry. So Al-Malik Al-Mansur is the ruler of Homs and this Salih Ismail is the ruler of Damascus, right? And the Christians, they all came together in Jerusalem to fight their battle. And he was feeling guilty though. He was feeling guilty that he had actually imprisoned the main scholar of his time, the biggest scholar of his time. So what he did was he gave his handkerchief to one of his very close ministers. He just wanted an excuse that if Izzuddin does something, I'll, I'll forgive him. Gave him this handkerchief and he told him to go to Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam and tell him that look, all of your previous posts and everything will all be reinstated. All you have to do and, and, and actually the, the ruler holds you in high respect. He has a lot of honor and uh, a lot of respect for you. But all he wants you to do, right, is that you should kiss his hand and give him some courtesy. And he'll, he'll forgive you. And he also told this guy, probably half knowing that he is not going to follow through, that if he says no, then bring him and imprison him in a tent close to where I am. Right? It's, it's amazing. So... Of course, when that minister came and he relayed the admiration of the king to him and everything, and everything he said, he said, La ilaha illallah. I mean, very few examples can be put forward like this. You know, you hear Yusuf alayhi salam's story when he's in prison and he insisted that the truth be told. And, you know, very, very few examples can be given of these fearless expressions. So Izzuddin replies that, what a fool you are. What a fool you are. You're expecting me to kiss the hands of the king while I don't even want my own hands to be kissed. I don't want even my hands to be kissed. Why should I kiss his hands? My friend, you are living in a world other than mine. Praise be to Allah. Praise be to Allah that I am not prey to the temptations that have captured your soul. So then he was imprisoned 
near the, where the king was in a tent. Now, he used to read Quran. And from, from there, you could hear his Quranic reading would be heard. So once one of the Christian monarchs there, Christian kings who were there along with the king, he asked, uh, who is this? He was told that this is literally the mufti and, and the greatest scholar of the Muslims. And, uh, and the reason he's been imprisoned is because he has shown opposition to our alliance with Christians. Right? So he tells the Christian uh, king that. The Christian said that the way you describe this man, if I had such a man as my bishop, then I would have felt just honored enough to just sit by his feet. You know, when he heard a description of who this, I, I didn't repeat all of that to you, but that's what he said. Shortly after that, this Saleh Ismail was defeated, right? And he was killed in an encounter. Izzuddin was then honorably taken to Egypt now. So now this is when he gets to Egypt, right? Yeah, because they lost the battle, right? So he, he was taken to Egypt. This is the first time he's going to Egypt now, right? So on the way, they passed by the town of Karak. Karak today, I visited last year, is in Jordan. Karak um, is in Jordan. And uh, I think that is the same place where Ghazwa Tumuta took place, right? Near there, that's where it took place. So the governor of Karak requested Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam to settle here. Why don't you settle here? You know, come and be the resident scholar here, the imam here, as they say. Izzuddin says, this small city of yours is not befitting my learning. It's too small for me. SubhanAllah. I'm sure he didn't say it in arrogance. He was just like, look, I can't stay here. Now he's in Egypt. He was received by the, by the ruler of Egypt, Al-Malik. As-Salih, he's Al-Malik, these are titles by the way. His name was Najmuddin Ayyub. His name was Najmuddin Ayyub. Like the others, they also had names, but they, they were given titles. So this is Al-Malik As-Salih, the righteous king. With great reverence and honor, and he was appointed the khatib of the main mosque of Cairo at the time, which was Masjid Amr ibn al-As, an, the one that was established by Amr ibn al-As when he conquered Egypt. And he also became, he was also appointed as the Grand Qadi of, uh, of Egypt. Egypt here means Cairo, right? Because that, that was the center, uh, that, that was the center. In fact, the Cairo had just been established then by the Fatimids just before that anyway, right? As a city, but otherwise it's just called Egypt. Anyway, he was also entrusted on the rehabilitation of the deserted mosques around the area, that that was his job. And also teaching Shafi'i fiqh in the Madrasa Salihiyya. Madrasa Salihiyya, which was actually um, founded by the, by the ruler. So, uh, his name was uh, uh, Al-Malik Al-Salih, Najmuddin Ayyub. He had a madrasa established after him called the Madrasa Salihiyya. I think maybe the remnants of that madrasa might still be around today. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam was fearless. So some of the events that took place during this time were absolutely amazing. There was a guy called Fakhruddin Uthman. This is always the case that you get somebody who becomes an undercover agent or somebody who has other ideas and they get somehow close to the ruler. It's just the history of the world, essentially, right? The iron, uh, what is it called? The, the, the horse of Troy, the, the hollow horse, whatever. It's just always like that. You had that with the Abbasid, you had that. So he had gained, a, this guy called Fakhruddin Uthman had gained a lot of influence over the king and he wasn't a very good guy. He, for some reason, had a drum house constructed over one of the masjids. 
Ezzuddin had it pulled down. He goes, Ye kya ho like, what's going on here? He had it pulled down. And he declared Fakhruddin to be an unrighteous person and somebody who has no reliability or witness in law. So he's not a reliable person anymore. He's, uh, he deemed him to be unreliable. And he, in protest, he also resigned to being Qadi and judge. I'm no longer the Qadi judge, I can't do this. This is blasphemy. However, the king didn't put him back there or insist. He just still had enjoyed the esteem of the king. But he wasn't made the Qadi again. Still, every fatwa he gave, even privately, without being the official judge or Qadi as the Mufti, he, they were still active upon. Once the ruler of Egypt sent an ambassador um, to the the ambassador to Baghdad, to the Khalif, you know, with some special uh, message. And he rejected, the, the Khalif rejected that ambassador saying, why isn't Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam's seal on there? Because it was missing the seal of Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, he, 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 refused, to, he refused to entertain uh, that ambassador who went there. Once the Sultan was holding court with all of his dignitaries. Now remember, the Sultan likes him a lot, right? So he's in his court with all of his dignitaries on his right and left. And people were saluting him. And you know, it was that whole possession of respect and honor and everything like that. When suddenly the king hears a voice from behind him, Ayyub. What will your reply be to Allah when he will ask you whether Egypt was given to you so that people could enjoy and indulge openly in drinking bouts and enjoy these kind of public receptions. So the king is suddenly hears the voice and he starts to shake and he's like, is that a fact? Is that what's happening? Is that what happens? He blurts out, yes, wine is being sold freely. Wine is available everywhere and other vices too. So he says, it's not my fault. This is from my father's time. He'd taken over his father. So what is Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam's response to that? The Shaykh said, so, oh, so you're one of those who say, بَلْ وَجَدْنَا آبَاءَنَا عَلَىٰ أُمَّةٍ وَإِنَّا عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ مُهْتَدُونَ وَمُقْتَدُونَ So you're one of those who say that, oh, we found our forefathers acting this way, so we do the same thing? which is in reference to the Jahili people of Makkah and other people and uh, other n nations who did not want to listen to the Prophet. The Sultan gave orders to stop it immediately. Now, as he's returning from the court, one of his students asks him, he's just amazed. His student is just taken aback. He's just still trying to come to terms with what has just happened. And he said that, why did you raise this question so openly? Why did you like tell him off so openly? So he said, when I saw him with all of this pomp and all of this entourage and everything, I thought that is going to get to his head, is going to get to his heart. So the best way to sort him out is to admonish him openly. Were you not seized with fright? Weren't you frightened to do that? His student asked him. He said, I was just so much seized by the awe and glory of Allah that the Sultan just seemed to be like as meek as a cat in front of me. It's ajib, ajib. Nobody else would do that, but then he is so focused on Allah, he has absolutely no care of what anybody else is saying. 
just about focusing on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unfortunately, the dissension among the Muslim factions at that time made it again possible for the Crusaders to look to attacking the Muslim lands. Uh, after this was the probably now going to be the third crusade because Salahuddin rahimahullah had managed to finish off the earlier crusades so they were they were they they, they looked to attack Mansura Mansura is another town slight distance away uh, some distance away from Cairo right it's in Egypt Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam took part in the battle to retrieving the town the city of Mansura and mashallah his duas were answered and they gained victory and they managed to uh, take, this, uh, take this town back. Uh, what happened is uh, his du'as were accepted because the ships of the crusaders, they were overcome by a gale and, and they couldn't attack. Now, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, this is when uh, he does his really big achievement, which is against the Mongols. Remember, the Mongols have taken many other towns. Egypt has not been taken yet. And their name their renown, their fright, their awe is in, everybody's, is in everybody's mind that you don't mess with the Mongols, right? Izzuddin started encouraging the Sultan to go and fight with the Mongols. The Sultan was very frightened. He'd heard the stories that they just come and lay waste to everything. Out of a whole city, only 15, 17 people survive. Can you imagine it, right? But he had no courage. Ibn, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam told him that he would win. Like, you're going to win. Subhanallah. So then he said, okay, fine. He, he trusted Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam so much as a wali of Allah and a great scholar. He said, okay, fine. I'll take your word for it. He started to, you need funds. So he started to raise funds from various different loans and everything. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam said, you know what to do? Forget that right now. Start off with bringing the jewelry of your women folk and tell your dignitaries to do the same. We'll sell that. And if the money is not enough, you can do chanda. You can do collection after that or take loans after that. Alhamdulillah, they complied, they complied, complied and there was, mashallah, enough money right, to, uh, for the battle. Another really, really interesting incident, this is, just blows me back all the time, is that many of the dignitaries in Cairo were officially slaves. So they had been brought as slaves initially because slavery was, uh, was, was around at that time. And then they had started working for the various different ministers and for the royal court and everything. And they'd gone to high positions, but they're officially slaves. They'd never been officially, uh, uh, official manumission had never taken place. They'd never been sold or whatever. So they're officially slaves. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam obviously found out about this. And some of them were very high position. In fact, one of them was the minister of the sultan himself. He was the minister of the sultan. He was officially a slave. Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam gave a fatwa about them that, look, this is wrong. They have to be officially uh, neutralized and made, made free. And until then, so people stopped dealing with them. Look at the respect the ulama had at that time. I mean, alhamdulillah, ulama do have some respect, but not, I don't think they have this kind of respect. Alhamdulillah, they do still have respect in many places. right? So... He obviously they went and complained to the Sultan. The Sultan tried to change Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam's mind by saying that, look, it's okay, we'll deal with it, or don't get involved in this issue, and so on. When he did that, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam decided that I'm going to leave town. I'm not going to stay here anymore if, that's good. if the king is saying this. I'm not staying here. 
So he decided to leave. So somebody comes and tells the king the next day that, look, you better go out to the outskirts because much of your city is leaving with Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam. They don't want to stay here anymore. So he goes out and manages to convince Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam. I, just can't, I can't still even you know, think about this fully and understand it fully. Like, why would people all start leaving? And he said, your, your city is going to be empty. All the big guys are going to leave. Your city is going to be empty. So he went and he managed to convince him to come back and settle back. So he managed to calm, uh, he managed to calm that down. Now, one of the ministers decided that, you know what, I need to put an end uh, to this Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam. So one day, uh, Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam's at home and uh, there's a knock on the door. So his son goes out uh, to open the door and he sees this minister with a sword. Where is your father? So he goes in to call his father. His father comes out and he said, yes, what do you want? The minister's hand starts shaking and his sword drops, right? Now his son was obviously very, very afraid. But then he called his father and then this happened. And then the minister just said, okay, what are you going to do to us? He said, I'm going to sell you. He said, okay, fine. If you're going to sell us, then you sell us. Make sure nobody else does. At least it will be an honor for you to sell us. And at least then we can have this story sorted out. Subhanallah. His son then later asked him, weren't you fearful? Weren't you fearful that he had a sword in his hand and he was, he'd come there? And the sultan, the sultan just said, no, there was no fear. I had no fear of him. So then he had them sold. Ibn Subki, when he writes about this story, he says that we've never heard anybody else who's managed to do this and get away with it. You know? Uh, others may have called for it, but never have been able to actually see it through as well. That's how powerful he was, but so rigorous and so particular. So Egypt had a, a lot of political upheaval. And after Malik Shah, his son Turan Shah, Al-Malik Al-Mu'azzam, uh, he had come into power, but then there were some Turkish chiefs and they seized power. And this was, the Ayyubids didn't last that long, you understand? And they also held Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam in very high regard. Now comes the Mamluks. The Mamluks are in charge. And the Mamluks, they have this, they're Turkic now, right? They're Turkic. Um, Ayyubids had been Kurdish. These guys are Turkic. And the Turkish Sultan Al-Malik Al-Zahir Baybaras and Sultan Qutuz, this is now their time. They were very, uh, this uh, Al-Malik Al-Zahir Baybaras, Sultan Babers they call him, right? Very famous. They were especially devoted to him. Now, you have to remember, he encouraged them, and they're the first people to go and fight against the Mongols and defeat them in that famous battle. So the first, one of the first battles that the Mongols lost in a big way was under Sultan Qutuz and this Al-Malik Al-Zahir Baybaras. And a lot of that encouragement came from Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam. If you go to Cairo today, there's multiple sites named under Malik al-Zahir Baybaras, where one place is where he's buried, another one is a grand masjid of his. Right, the last time I went, uh, one of his masjids, they were actually under reconstruction. And mashallah, he's considered to be one of the big, you can say, historical figures of Egypt. Now, uh, to continue, his uh, sultan, uh, sorry, not sultan, but sultanul ulama, Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam, is a very generous person. Very generous person. Not just generous, but very ascetic. So he sold all of his wife's ornaments, 
he convinced her and she's like look as long as I get a house in paradise take all of this and he gave it all to the poor and she was very happy about it for that deal if he had nothing and somebody came to him he would give him a piece of his turban he would give him a piece of his turban so at least they can do something with that once he made a mistake he went and openly he was a very transparent individual he went and openly declared it I've made a mistake he announced that he was wrong the biographer Ibn Subki says that just absolute he had absolute fearless disregard for the world or power or fame and riches unflinching full trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he showed that he had attained a very high status of, uh, of being sublime in this regard. Ibn Subki also mentions that Sheikh Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam was a disciple of the great Sufi Sheikh, Sheikh Shihabuddin al-Suhrawardi, from who the Suhrawardi line uh, comes, Sheikh uh, Shihabuddin al-Suhrawardi. He was also given ijazah and khilafa from him, granted permission uh, so that he can uh, teach others. And he also for some time remained in the company of Abu Hassan al-Shadiri. He would say that the scholar's weapon is their knowledge. And just as uh, people have to fight in the way of Allah and risk the, uh, everything of theirs, so does the scholar have to do the same thing. And then he will be uh, commendable. He wrote a number of great books. There's a number of great books that he wrote. And uh, after Ghazali, you could say, after Imam Ghazali, you could say that he's the next scholar who wrote on the subject of the maqasidu sharia, of the objectives of the sharia, to reduce the sharia down to what are its main uh, objectives. So Imam Ghazali was known to have done that. And then Izzuddin ibn Abdi Salam's name. There's only about four, five, six scholars whose name comes out who focused on this particular area and Isuddin ibn Abdi Salam is one of them that's why one of the more recent scholars of 300 years ago Shah Waliullah uh, al-Dihlawi who wrote the Hujjatullah al-Baligha on, uh, on this subject he says that he owes three scholars for this book and uh, for a lot of that knowledge one is Imam Ghazali the other one is Abu Sulaiman al-Khattabi and the third one is Isuddin ibn Abdi Salam so he's no normal scholar, I mean, as you, can, as you can see. And mashallah, he lived for a long time. And he died when he was 83 years old. He dies when he's 83 years old. It was the 9th of Jumad al-Ula in 668 H. 668 H. So remember, this is after Jilani has gone, after Ghazali has gone, right? So he dies in 668 H. Al-Malik al-Zahir Baybaras, he accompanies the funeral. With, along with all of his chiefs and rulers and everybody else and ministers. And they were very, very aggrieved by, by his, by his uh, eventual departure. And the king finally said that verily he had won the hearts of the people. And he was then laid to rest. And mashallah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly reward him for all that he did and for encouraging this battle against the Mongols, the defense against the Mongols, and then finally winning that, all of his du'as and everything for all the books that he has left behind, and for being the Sultanul Ulama and for being such an inspiration. Already we know that he is accepted because in this masjid in the middle of London, we're discussing him after 
you know, how many years? You know, after several hundred years, we're discussing him. That in itself is an amazing idea. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us all to do something special in this world for the sake of the hereafter. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow these people to be our role model. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules and at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.